you're listening to Midlife State of Mind Podcast, hosted by Aaron Beadle and Belinda Fleming, two gals who dish on all the challenges and opportunities that come with this middle section of your life. Each episode, you'll find yourself going between laughter and tears as they cover all the topics you need to know about midlife. Welcome back to Midlife State of Mind. I'm your host, Erin Beadle. And Belinda Fleming. Thank you for joining in today. We always look forward to every Wednesday when a new episode drops. So if you haven't already, click the subscribe button on whatever platform you listen to Midlife State of Mind podcast. And also, if you have a moment to write a five-star rating and review, that would be so helpful to us spreading the word and getting more listeners. Absolutely. We really appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. It helps us really grow the Midlife State of Mind community. Today we are talking about, which I didn't know it was a real word, and I've been saying it for a while. And somebody said to me one time when I used that word, they were like, I don't think that's a real word. Catastrophizing, which sounds kind of made up, doesn't it? But it is. I I looked it up as well because I was like, am I even spelling it right? And yeah, it is in Webster's Dictionary. Yeah, because I thought it was just me kind of making up my own word. But catastrophizing, and we're going to talk today about what it is and why we do it and how can we eliminate that knee-jerk reaction of doing it. Basically, catastrophizing happens when someone assumes the worst will come true and exaggerates a problem. So there is a problem, but maybe we blow it out of proportion, if you will. And I like the analogy, one of my kids had some anxiety as a youngster and would do some catastrophizing and he saw a therapist for a while and she related it to a spider and the spider tries to build a web. And you know what happens when you start building a web and it just keeps going and going and all the little filaments cross each other and it just creates this big sticky web that you get caught in. Mm -hmm. So she'd always tell him, try to get the spider before he has a chance, meaning that was the the tendency to catastrophize. Get him and, you know, minimize him before he gets the chance to start building that web. And, And then I've also heard the analogy of the snowball which I actually like too. So you think about what happens with a snowball if you're creating a snowball, right? You roll it and it continues to build and build and it builds that momentum as it goes down the hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So that would also be a good way of thinking that starts small, one little thought, and then it starts to gain size and speed as your thoughts escalate. And before you know it, you know, you've made this huge problem out of this, like, The saying, don't make a mountain out of a molehill, essentially. Right. This pattern of thinking can be destructive, and it can also just create unnecessary negative energy. Right, and anxiety. Yeah, and and so today, I think that we want to spend some time talking about how can we reframe our initial... Tendency to do that. Yes, exactly. One of the things that I think is important is oftentimes this is a product of an upregulation of your central nervous system. So you probably be operating from what we call the sympathetic state, which is that fight or flight. We've talked about it in many episodes because it's a very common thing in today's society. We're fast moving. We're always busy. We sit in traffic. We get hyped up on caffeine. We're always on social media. We're feeling like we always have to keep up with everything that's going on. And so we do ramp up our central nervous system into that fight or flight state, right? So that naturally lends itself to catastrophizing because you're already in that heightened state of like looking for the monster, you know, under the bed, or you're looking for the problem, or you're waiting for that other shoe to drop. 
And I do think that if we just really focus on modest, if that's the right word, being modest with your expectation, not catastrophizing, not leaning so deeply into each and every disappointment, like understand that not everything is going to go our way. Go and listen to our Managing Your Expectations episode about keeping realistic expectations. One thing that I know just from my own personal experience is that catastrophizing has serious physical and mental health ramification because when we do live in that chronic stress state, it stresses like the number one health concern for anyone. I mean, you know, it's not smoking. It's not lack of exercise. It's not lack of sleep. Stress is really the number one thing that we should be always trying to minimize our stress Mm -hmm. because when we do that, everything else kind of falls into place because when you minimize your stress, you make better choices in your life. You make better choices in your sleep. You make better choices in your eating habits. You make better choices in your decisions of your life, right? Because you're not in a stressed state. And one of the things I found that was really interesting when I did my yoga therapy training, I did a lot of chronic pain training and using yoga for chronic pain. And that people that have chronic pain that have a tendency to catastrophize, they actually have worse pain symptoms or they rate it higher. So like if you've ever gone to the ER or if you've ever been in the hospital and they ask you to rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, People that have that tendency to catastrophize will rate their pain higher. Well, when you think of someone that has a tendency to catastrophize situations, do you think it's a personality type or do you think the person even recognizes that they're in this negative loop? What are your thoughts well, about Well, I do think it is a personality type. I think it, and I think it's people that suffer from depression and anxiety and any kind of mood disorder have more tendency to catastrophize than someone that maybe doesn't suffer with depression pressure, anxiety. And I don't think they can recognize it. I personally don't just from the people that I've known that have had that. And I've even had the tendency at times, and I've talked before about this on the podcast when I was diagnosed with MS, for six months after I was diagnosed, I catastrophized. Mm -hmm. Every single day, my poor husband, God love him. At the time we had just two kids, you know, I'd get them in bed. And of course, at nighttime is when things are worse, right? All the demons come out and I just sit there and I cried every night for probably six months thinking that, I'm going to end up in a wheelchair. I'm going to end up this. I'm going to end up that. You know, this, you know. And then finally, one day, I swear, it like clicked. I was like, you know what? I could get hit by a bus tomorrow and die. And none of this is going to happen. So I just need to start living my life, right? You know, you've heard that depression is living in the past. Anxiety is living in the future. Mm -hmm. And we do, we talk about this all the time, living in the present moment. And I mean, I'm by no means an expert at it, but it was almost a gift getting diagnosed with MS because it led me on this whole path of where I am now Mm -hmm. that maybe I wouldn't have ever gone on, or maybe it would have taken me longer to embrace living in the moment. But I think that, you know, I think for people that have a natural tendency towards it, or sometimes it could be brought about by circumstances in your life. But it's hard to, when you're in that state, to talk yourself out of it. That's why what it is, it's strategies that you have to employ ahead of time. You know, you're really fortunate in that you were able to recognize it within yourself and you were able to pivot and to redirect. So I guess I do want to just kind of ask you, though, if other people that were in your life at that time period when you were catastrophizing on a regular basis, what was your response to people that recognized that in you, but you weren't willing to acknowledge it? So because that is also problematic when you have a family member or a friend 
who you clearly see this is a pattern that they have and you've just hit the nail on the head though it was until you decided mm-hmm. something within you flipped a switch but I can probably tell someone all day long and if they're not ready to see it or acknowledge it then I'm kind of wasting my breath because it might even impact my relationship with that person negatively if I'm continually trying to point out right if you're trying to be positive poly and that is interesting that you said that first off I have to say you know not everyone has a supportive person in their life and I was blessed with having a very supportive husband but who, I'm sure some of the time you didn't want to hear there that they yeah he would always you. say like well if you're in a wheelchair we'll, we'll get front row uh, at the VIP. Um, <laughs> at, at Disney at the time where kids were little you know or we'll have front row parking always we use humor a lot in our family and even when he would say it I never got mad at him or it would be like I don't want to hear it I would just think to myself it's easy to say that when it's not you right because it's always easy to try to put a positive spin on something when it's not your own well I guess I, I want to hear more about for people that are catastrophizing that aren't acknowledging it that they're doing it how do you get someone to acknowledge that they're doing it I guess is what I'm trying to figure out I don't know if you can get somebody that's like the old saying you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink right I think it has to really come from within and I think you know you can hear somebody but but sometimes maybe just being a supportive like if somebody needs to vent to you like so I would vent to Jeff and sometimes he wouldn't say a word Mm -hmm. he would just let me just basically catastrophize Yeah, he would just let me get it off and then I'd feel better. Then I'd wake up the next day and, you know, during the day I was fine because I was busy. I was taking care of kids. It was always at night, the witching hour, you know, everybody's in bed. That's when the anxiety would be the worst. Did you ever have to take any kind of medication? I never did. To help? But I mean, not saying that I probably could have benefited. I could have benefited from it, but I just knew that I was going to see myself through it. It was just a matter of getting through it. I mean, and I've been in the hospital many times since then with my heart. And and I will say this, when I had a really bad time with my heart, this was like in 2008, let's just say that I did end up having to take in the hospital. I was in the hospital for like two weeks and I had to take Xanax Mm -hmm. because I literally could not stop crying. I had been in the hospital. My youngest was in kindergarten and he's now like a rising junior in college. And I just felt like I was never going to get out of the hospital Mm -hmm. and I was never going to get home. And I missed my kids. I was like oh my gosh am I going to be here forever it just sounds like a really hard time oh just when you you know if you've ever been sick let's say you tear your Achilles tendon and you know and let's just say tennis is your thing and you're like I'm never going to be able to play tennis again I'm never going to be able to do this again and you just build it up into your head and so what I would have to tell myself and since then I've been in the hospital since that time in 2008 and I just say this is what I'm doing right now I don't try to think ahead Mm -hmm. I will just say this is where I am today and this is what I have to deal with. This is the season, if you will. In 2014, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to get a pacemaker all within a month of each other. And this was really helpful for me. I know a lot of people will have a mantra in yoga. Sometimes we call it us on culpas. So I would say to myself during that period, because I had had at that point the tools that I didn't have 25, 23 years ago when I was diagnosed with MS, I wasn't into yoga at that point. So I would say, I will live in the present moment free from fear of what tomorrow will bring. What I want to do, I want to live in the present moment free from fear of what tomorrow will bring. So I would repeat that to myself sometimes a hundred times a day. Wow, that's powerful. And it helps. I mean, I still do it now if I have a tendency to catastrophize something in my life. I mean, we're both parents and both of us have grown kids. And if you think about it sometimes, what could happen to one of your kids? They live far away from you. You can get yourself... You could just be paralyzed, right? 
right? fear. Yeah, every day of your life, if that is what you are choosing to focus on. Yes, it, it's absolutely true. And it isn't a good way to live our daily life because then you're just paralyzed by fear. Mm-hmm. And we're distorting situations and we're not living, like you said, the episode we talked about being unrealistic and being realistic. You have to have these grounding techniques in your life, you know, whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, and like you said, that support group, your support group, meaning whomever it is that is your daily contact. And you want to have people around you that hopefully when you start to spin out of control or when you start to take a situation and blow it out of proportion, that you have someone in your inner circle that can kind of say, hey, let's dial that back a bit. Let's take a moment to pause here. And like you said, you know, Jeff was there to put a spin on whatever negative thing you could say. He was there to say, oh, well, let's look at the bright side. And we all need those kinds of people in our life. And that's what brings us balance too, is that we seek out those kinds of people. What happens for some of us is we might be isolating ourselves, And that isn't a good thing because then you have no one to help you stay grounded. You have no one to help you find that middle place. That's a great point that you have because if you're isolated, it's probably by choice because Mm -hmm. you've chosen to isolate yourself. I just read this really interesting book called Why Fish Don't Exist and the lady that wrote it when she was seven and she was with her dad and he's some kind of scientist anyways, biochemist, let's Mm -hmm. just say. So he's very scientific. They're at Cape Cod and it was just her and her dad and she just says to him, she says, I don't even know why I asked him, you know, at seven. She says, what is the meaning of life? And he just looks at her and kind of smiles and they're bird watching and he says, nothing. Like, basically, we <laughs> exist for no reason. He's like, and he goes into this long explanation. It was actually kind of funny, but it really affected her. Not necessarily in a good way. She's made good use of it now. But he said, you're less useful than even an ant who, you know, aerates the ground and this and that. So what I say is that the meaning of life is connection. Right. If we had to quantify, we are designed for connection. That is the only reason. I mean, if you think of early caveman, they were in groups, the hunters and gatherers. They had little pods, if you will, of like cave people, Mm -hmm. you know, who they lived together in communities. Think about the indigenous people, the Native Americans here that lived in tribes. They were tribes together. You know, you're always in groups, you know, even in the wild. Jeff and I watched a show today where where these seals, they, oh no, sea lions, I'm sorry. And the one seal was trying to catch these tunas and he was driving them into this little bay by himself. So he goes over and some of his friends are like sleeping on the shore and he's like, you know, and he calls them and then they, they coordinate and they're able to kill all these tunas, you know, that they need to survive. And that's what even animals do it. We have to be in groups. We need connection. And that is one of the keys, I think, for just a fulfilled life. But also then you have that person who kind of anchors you when you're trying to get taken away, you know. We do it for one another. Like there's times in my life where I'm that one that's being the anchor for someone. And then there's other times where they're they're being the anchor for me. Absolutely. We have to. So I was going to say, I read some great ways to help manage catastrophic thinking. So as first is acknowledge that bad things do happen. It's part of our human existence that bad things are going to happen. No one's going to escape from life without something bad. 
that happening, right? Because that's part of also that balance. You know, you really are able to relish in the wonderful things that happen. You know, every day there's risk involved in getting oh, in your sure. car, in walking to the mailbox. You know, it could be you slip and, and fall and sprain your ankle and you, you're like, why did that happen to me today? Yes. Well, I don't really know. Well, why, that's one of the things but... is one bad day doesn't mean that your whole week or month is going to be bad. Everybody has a bad day. So what you have to do is you have to recognize the irrational thoughts. Even though you can acknowledge that unpleasant things happen, you just know that it's out there that it could happen, but you don't let it be the All main focus. Yeah. So you just say when you start having irrational thoughts, okay, recognize them as irrational. Even say to yourself, you're being irrational. I mean, I talk to myself out loud. I don't know. Do you talk to yourself out loud? I do. I do. And I don't, I'm like, is that weird? I don't know. I was talking to myself actually yesterday, taking my daughter back to camp and she was responding and she was like, why are you even saying that mom? And I was like, I'm talking to myself, Sadie. She's like, could you talk inside your head instead of out loud like a normal person? I have to (laughs) talk out loud. So I was like, I I wasn't engaging for you to respond. I'm talking to myself. And she's like, could you just say it in your head? (laughs) You're like, no, I can't. Exactly. And then you have to break the stream of negative thoughts. So like you said, reframing. So maybe have a mantra or something that you say where when you notice, when you recognize that you're having these irrational thoughts, that then you are like, nope, we're not going to do that. It's just like if you redirected a toddler. What do you do if a toddler is doing something, throwing a tantrum? You redirect their behavior and try to distract them from that tantrum. Right. Sometimes we're all just big toddlers. (laughs) I mean, I think we can all ask ourselves, how can you make just one small change the next time that you're triggered into this leaning towards negative thoughts uh, over, you know, analyzing a situation or blowing it out of proportion and find something, just one small change Mm -hmm. and let that be every time that you decide I'm going to make the choice not to go down the path of catastrophizing today. I'm actually going to make the shift and take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take the moment to think about all the things that are going right today. Right. Like a gratitude list. Yeah. I mean, you have to, in order to make change, if this is a pattern that is is showing up in your life or someone that you have a connection with and so you're affected by it on a daily basis, we need to find ways to usher in a way to change the thought process. Yeah, there's lots of things, like you said, mantra, you could make a gratitude list, you could go for a run or walk, get out in nature. It's hard to catastrophize when you're out in nature. One of the things is if you aren't good about practicing self-care, so getting good sleep, taking care of yourself, nourishing yourself with good food, you will have a tendency to have more catastrophic thoughts when you're fatigued, when you're stressed, because again, you're in that stress state and that is just a natural, that's kind of how we're wired, right? We've talked about this before. Your brain is wired to for survival, not for happiness. So you have to trick your brain and like make it be like, no, happiness matters. You know, we want to be content. If you are someone who has a tendency to catastrophize, next time you find yourself doing that, come up with some kind of mantra for yourself or find some, like Belinda said, just one small little tactic that you can employ to redirect. And try not to really attach too much to the past. The past is in the past and it you know is an experience that we can learn from, but it shouldn't be all consuming just like the future shouldn't be all-consuming. Right. We have to really, really dig deep to stay connected and grounded to the present moment because that's where life is happening. Absolutely. We are always grateful to have you guys tune in with us each week. 
Visit our website at midlifestateofmindpodcast.com to learn more about Belinda and myself and also about our upcoming retreat in Italy this October. See you soon. Bye now. Bye. This has been an E-Squared production.